Hey everybody, Keach Rainwater here with Designated Drummer. I am your Designated Drummer for today, and uh, I actually, I'm up in Canada right now. My daughter lives in Canada, and I'm up here visiting her for a while, so I was thinking, who is one of the best, who is the best Canadian drummer I could actually get a hold of and sit down and talk to? And uh, now, if you remember back in the 1980s, now some of you are probably too young to remember this, but those of us who are around, in 1985, there was a huge hit song called Go For A Soda by big Canadian rocker Kim Mitchell, uh, who was actually the lead singer for a band called Max Webster. So anyway, cut to uh, 1985, he had the big single coming out called Go For A Soda, and I have with me right here the drummer who played on that amazing song, Paul DeLong. Wow, that's a, quite an intro. That's amazing. Yes, sir. Yeah, you are deserving of it. Um, Paul DeLong is, was the drummer for Kim Mitchell in those formative years, those, those huge years, and they had a big hit and were touring with it and everything. It's such a huge song in the States, Go For A Soda, and that whole album, that whole Akimo, what was it called? Akimbo logo, yeah. Akimbo logo, yeah. yeah. Welcome to the Thank you. show. You're our designated drummer for today. Excellent. Excellent. And, uh, uh, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about... Um, uh, you know, how you started out, you know, and uh, I know you've done a lot of session work here in Canada and uh, probably the States too, I'm sure. Um, a little bit. Uh, you've done, you played on uh, like uh, Broadway plays, like yeah. stage plays and things like that, yeah. done the music with that. Musicals, and that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. You've had a, you've had a huge career and uh, you're still doing it to I'm this day. And still trying to do it. <laughs> COVID doesn't help, but uh, yeah, still plugging away. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, so how did you... Um, what year would it have been, let's say, when you, uh, you know, started? What was your first experience like playing the drums? Did you sort of just fall into it? Well, uh, like a million other people, it was seeing Ringo on Ed Sullivan. Right. The Beatles. I was 12, 11 or 12. And uh, so that was February 64. So, um, and man, that did it. I got the bug. And um, then the usual stuff of... Uh, Getting my mother's waste baskets and um, a pair of chopsticks and oh yeah the whole thing and um, and yeah and I got a I finally got a snare drum with a little cymbal arm that came off with a little twelve inch cymbal <laughs> I had that and then uh, by the time I was fourteen I was in my first band and um, and then I finally one Christmas Christmas of sixty five I think I got a, a set of drums that was. Uh, uh, a good set. It was uh, oh, actually, see, there's a set in the corner there. Oh, yeah, I'm looking at it right They're now. called Autocrap by John Gray. I have oh. a duplicate. That's a duplicate of the kit, my first kit, and um, made in England by John Gray. Uh, and so I, I got that kit for Christmas, and then um, yeah, and I mean, it just I never I just been playing ever since. It's was just, it one of those things where when you first sat down at the kit, you kind of already knew how to play? Yeah, I mean that was my experience of yeah. it. Yeah, I sat down. I remember that Christmas morning. And I sat down behind the drums and I went boom, chuck, boom, boom, chuck, boom. You know, and I yeah. could just do it because uh, I had heard it, you know. So I must have had some natural ability. I remember the first thing when we got, my parents took me to get that snare drum backing up a bit, that snare drum yeah. with the arm. So the first thing I played along with was um, No Reply by the Beatles. I put that on. And it's a Bossa Nova beat. This happened. You put it on the record. Week. You put the record yeah, needle put the, down yeah, and put some and, headphones and, and, on or something. And, and no headphones, just. Turned it up and and it, but it's a bossa nova. This happened oh, right. once before when I came to you know it's a yeah. on the rim. Oh, right, okay. So yeah. I'm playing the rim and my mother says, "Oh, you, I don't, I think you're doing it. Wrong. You're not supposed to." And I said, "No, that, that's what it is." You know, because she thought <laughs> you know that it would be natural to hit the center of the drum. Oh, I see. Like, and, I see. Yeah. But anyway, that's uh, this is trivial stuff. But I just memories of of first starting out and how magical it all was. You know, just having a bass drum or a. Um, <laughs> getting a bass drum and a hi-hat and 
Tom Toms is like extraordinary. Or the first time you go see a drummer live, I remember my dad taking me down to this jazz club to see this drummer, Terry Clark, who's still around, very famous jazz drummer. Wow. And, and just watching him play, and I remember them trading fours, and I didn't know what the hell was going on, right? Like, I, why, yeah. why are they stopping and starting? Why is he playing now? And how do they know when to come back in and, and all that sort of uh. thing? Because my dad got the, the other thing, in addition to the Beatles and all that and, and that whole thing, my dad always played um, jazz records at home, so he had a collection of 78s. Um, that was massive, and, and he had this record called um, Liza by Chick Webb and his orchestra, and it was a drum solo. It starts with a drum solo. I have it on CD now, oh, wow. but that captivated me too. So, and then the Gene Krupa story, I saw that on TV. Sing, sing, and all that stuff. All that yeah. sing, 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 yeah. sing, sing. So, so there was always this jazz thing and the rock thing at the same time. I got me interested in the whole thing of drumming. So, uh, and that stayed with me my whole life pretty well. Did you go to school? I mean, when you were in school, did you were you in a band and all that? And did you play? They told me I had no musical talent. So, uh, <laughs> of course, I played cello for a year. And yeah, and then my teacher said you have no musical talent whatsoever. Yeah. And so, and I went, okay, I'll dance on your grave. Oh yeah, yeah I'll drum on your grave. <laughs> yeah. uh, then you never did seek out to play drums in band. I mean, you, I. No, I don't know why I didn't either, but I never did play it in um, in school. Um, it's funny because the guitar player in the first band I was in, he he played snare drum in the in the school band. I don't know what what happened, but uh, yeah, cello was weird. <laughs> wow! And now, my story was that I wanted to play drums, but when I got on the drum line to you know when you sign up for band yeah. in sixth grade, uh, they kind of said we've already have enough drummers choose another instrument right. you know so i was kind of shunned away from <laughs> trying yeah. to which i really wanted to but my dad was always like yeah you're you gonna play trumpet right you know because he played trumpet <laughs> right, right. and so i said yeah i guess so that'll be my second choice and so but yeah. then always secretly i wanted to be on the drum line and mm -hmm. i wanted to be playing drums because that's what i really wanted. that's what i had a passion for yeah and you know just one of those things that i just made that decision when i was about 13 mm -hmm. that i am going to be a drummer that is going to be my path yeah. Yeah, just haven't stopped. Yeah, it's I. You, you know, you said uh, when we were talking before. Uh, when did you quit your day job? To be, I never had a day job. I just went straight from high school to playing full time. And that is awesome. Not that I was making a lot of money. I was making some time, like you know, make sixty dollars a week or seventy five dollars a week. You know, it's like uh, I remember living in a rooming house that I paid seventeen bucks a week rent. And I was making sixty bucks a week, and so I was laughing, you know. Uh, no was this in the late sixties, early seventies? Yeah, uh, it would be early seventies. Early seventies, right. yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow, seventeen bucks a week. Yeah, that was the that was that was the life then, folks. Yeah, you could do that. You know, I Paul Lang was talking about how you could have an apartment in the seventies. You could have an apartment for one hundred fifty bucks a month, and you could, yeah. you know, do yeah. a couple of gigs, and it's paid for. I had a I had an apartment for two hundred a month at Young and Eglinton, a bachelor apartment with cockroaches and. Uh, <laughs> That's when I was playing with Dominic Triano, and I was laughing. He was paying me three fifty a, a, a week, and uh, I, I was. It was like I felt like the big time because I mean I had no debts or anything. All I, I did was buy drums and and records and drumsticks, and that was it. Do cymbals all the time. You're a hard hitter, right? Aren't you a hard hitter? I, yeah, I'm. I, I'm hard on cymbals. I seem to bash them too hard. Yeah. And. Uh, but I, 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 I do hit the drums pretty hard. But I'm not a. I see people like. 
I'm not Corky Ling or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but one thing for sure we all know is you definitely love to hit that cup of the symbol, the cup yes. of the ride symbol from Go For A Soda. That, that man, when we were listening to that, we were, this would have been mid-80s, and I was in, you know, making a living playing drums, but we were just bar bands, and we, yeah. we, didn't, we weren't anybody. But we looked up to people like you, and we were just like, we just, we just marveled over that ride symbol. Yeah, and, and really, you know, I think they tried to EQ some of that out because I was hitting it too hard, you know, like it just t- took over the whole track. But it's kind of neat because it is a signature thing, but it's also too much, you know. Like it, that's the thing we were talking about, the things you learn the hard way in the studio when you're young. Um, well, I wasn't that young then. I should have known better. But still, I like it. But yeah. I think what drives me to the cup of the cymbal, to me, honestly, is that when you go to the ride cymbal, in a lot of cases when there's a solo or so there's a yeah. lot of music going on, it kind of gets buried in there. You don't really hear it. Yeah. I want people to hear it, so yeah. I'll tend to go to that yeah. cup of the cymbal where it's more pronounced. I like it, yeah. yeah. I remember when, when you know a guitar player I was with at the time, Steve Mandel, who's a Nashville guy, uh, he would say to me, he would go, yeah, that's, you hear that? That's a Sabian symbol. Like as if Sabian <laughs> symbols were the only symbols that could make that sound. Like he was like, that's a Sabian symbol. Because he would look on the album, yeah. the back of the album, and it would say Sabian symbols yeah, on there. Yeah. You know, so that was kind of a thing. You know, and uh, I had read somewhere a while back that Sabian uh, took that symbol, something about that symbol, that very same symbol, and they framed it or something. Yeah, it's in the showcase of the window at the Sabian offices. They have a whole bunch of... They're Canadian, right? Yeah, Canadian? Yeah, yeah, in New Brunswick. So it's sitting there. Yeah, I have a picture of that somewhere, and I signed it and everything. You donated the actual yeah, symbol the actual to symbol, the, yes. like, the one you actually yeah, touched yeah. and played. Yeah, because I, I, I probably, I'm a, I'm a guy who uh, I, I, I changed from all these heavy AA symbols to all to a light, thinner, hand-hammered symbols. So I probably, they said, um you know, I had an endorsement of Sabian, so they always said, if you if you want to get new stuff, that's fine. But if you're not using the old stuff, send it back because we, we'll do something. So I think I probably sent that symbol back, but they put it aside or something, you know. And then, oh, yeah, right. Yeah, and got me to sign it and, and uh, framed it. That's down. like the holy grail of ride symbols yeah, to me. It's yeah, that thing, you know. I'd like to hear it again and hear what that bell sounds like, you know, because, um, man, I'm so deaf now. You know, I, I swear part of it is that symbol, you know. <laughs> You're right here, right? Yeah. You're right-handed, right? You're yeah, right-handed. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so um, I think I destroyed a lot with that bill. Wow. So uh, early 70s, you're making a living right out of high school, and yeah. you probably were in a band, and that band just started working, or, or were you going on auditions, or how did that work? Um, it's funny. Right out of high school, I got this gig. There was a Japanese band called the Flower Traveling Band. They were from uh, Japan, and, and they played... Uh, the, the band Lighthouse uh, had played at Expo 70 with them, and he, they thought they were great. And so they brought them back to Toronto, and the drummer got tuberculosis, and so they needed a drummer. So I was 18, and I got I auditioned, and I got that gig. So that was my—I thought, I'm right out of high school. I made the big time. This is it, you know, So because uh, I recorded my first album with them, and um, it seemed like things were going pretty good. But then after that, he got better, and they went back to Japan, and so I— then I just started playing playing whatever bands I could uh, play with, and and um, I seemed to gravitate towards the prog rock kind of thing. So I played in a couple of different bands that played Genesis and Gentle Giant and King Crimson. But I wasn't. I was the most I was making would be 125 a week. But we played all over Ontario and Quebec. And back in those days, you'd play for in a club for a week or two weeks even. So you could play the year round just in Ontario and we'd go to Quebec City which would be like heaven or Montreal it was great you know we're just playing all the time every night and um, 
Yeah, if you're like me, when you play in a club like that for a week or two weeks, when you take your drums up, it's just a pile of wood chips yeah. on the ground, on the on the carpet, you know. And it's like, sorry, you like, oops, sorry. <laughs> and I remember my drums smelling like smoke. Of course, cigarette smoke. Yeah. And, and I had the maple gretch, and they just got yellower and yellower. Uh, it seems like the cigarette smoke in those clubs would rise and oh, hang man. in the ceiling for a while, and then everybody would leave at closing time, and the place would shut down. Then it would slowly oh, fall man. down. And I remember cleaning my drums for weeks at a time, Stink. or once a month or so, yeah. and it would just be. Like grime symbols, coming out, symbols like, covered yeah. in that crap, yeah, like it's nicotine. Awful. Yeah, I was surprised we all didn't get cancer from the secondhand smoke. Oh my god, bad. yeah. But um, my first big gig uh, after that initial period was in 1977 with this, this guitar player named Dominic Trano. I don't know if you know about him, but he was. It sounds familiar. Yeah, great, great guitar player from Toronto. He had a band called Mandela, and then there was a band called Bush. Uh, and um, <laughs> the the other Bush X. Well, the reason they're called Bush X is because they got sued by by Triano because they stole the name. So he's they had to call themselves Bush X. But anyway, okay. Bush was a great, incredible band, and uh, with a great drummer named Whitey Glenn, who is no longer with us. He was a fantastic drummer. I don't, you, you should hear um, if you haven't heard him play. He was just amazing. So Triano was the big deal in. Um, in Toronto, and he had been out. He had played with the James Gang. He replaced Joe Walsh, and then he played with the Guess Who. And then he came back to Toronto to start um, his own band. And um, and I was twenty four, twenty five. I auditioned for it, but I kept blowing the audition because I was so nervous because he was the big deal. And I remember he came down to a strip club. I was playing in. A, I was backing up strippers in this club, and uh, he came down to check me out. And he sat in while the girls were taking their clothes off just to check me out, and decided he liked he liked uh, the way I played. And we were talking about why does somebody like he just happened to see something in in my playing that he liked. And but I every when I auditioned formally for it, I blew it because I sucked, you know. And but finally, he just showed up. He tried out different drummers and. And uh, nobody worked out. And finally, he showed up at my door one day and said, you got the gig whether you like it or not. And I went, oh, shit. Okay. And wow. um, so that was great. So then I started, I recorded three albums with him. And that was the first time I'd done a big sort of Capitol Records, a big deal recording. The big and session did, and the record and all yeah, that. Yeah. And, and, um, and we toured uh, Canada a lot. But we also started going to the U.S. We were in New York and uh, Wisconsin a lot. And... Um, doing live radio shows and TV shows and doing all this stuff. So that was a great experience. And it was with Dominic Triano. We opened for Max Webster. That's where Kim saw me play the first time. And it's stuck in his mind. I like that guy, you know. So so when, when Max Webster broke up, Kim phoned me up and, and said, um, you want to do some, uh, do uh, something, like you want let's play or something. So then he... He came and picked me up in his uh, the brown slum finder, as he called it, the brown van, <laughs> with my drums. And I thought we were going to go to a rehearsal studio and just play. He took we went to a, a recording studio and we played, we recorded right away. Wow, and we that's recorded great. Um, demos of Kids in Action and Chain of Events and a couple other tunes that I don't remember that appeared on the very first album, the one before Akimbo Logo. But we hit it off right away musically. Um, 
just it was great. He, he might have been maybe secretly testing to see if you could could you know work up a song. You're you're fast. You know yeah. how is this guy to work with as yeah. far as because in the studio you're always making changes on the yeah. fly. He said, hey, let's change that chorus. Let's put two verses in mm-hmm. and blah blah blah. And you're always changing. He probably maybe wanted to test you and see yeah. if, uh, how you did. And it, and it just happened to be one of those days. Well, we were in there two days, I think. That it just the, it was a natural. We really uh, I. I knew where he was coming from and I, he liked what I was doing with his music and uh, it was really cool. And as a matter of fact, yeah, I know what you ever, the phenomenon of the demo is great and then you try and recreate it at, in the studio to do yeah. the real thing Yeah, and it's never as good. Well, that's the case with this tune, Kids in Action. Um, it, it's good on the, the rec- recording, but the that demo we did is killer and the sound of it is unbelievable. But... Kim has the two-inch tape of it, but he's got to get it baked, and I keep bugging him. Because, right. Yeah, because yeah. I want to hear For that. those who don't know, two-inch tape was the recording medium at the yeah. time, you know, two-inch tape. And now if it sits around for too long, that's yeah. basically what they call sticky tape and rust. Uh, that's what it's made of. It's made of, like, it's basically plastic with sticky some kind of thing and then uh, um, iron oxide on there. Right. And if you let it sit around for too long, it actually will stick to itself. And when you load it up on the machines, it either... It rubs off a residue onto the machine, or it sticks to itself and can rip the yeah. thing. So the the actual for those who don't know, the actual remedy for that is to bake it, and it's a very precise and specific temperature, time, all that stuff. You got to bake the tape in in sort of an oven, you yeah. know, for a little while, and yeah. that fixes it sort of. So he's got that two inch tape. He, I just I just want to wow. I keep bugging him every time. Just uh, transfer it to Pro Tools and yeah, I got to hear that because it was magical. Like that, we never I, I, um, the sound that studio, United Media Studios. I don't know. It just in those drums, it just happened to sound great. You know, it was fantastic. Now I'm going to ask you this later yeah. in the. Or I was going to ask you this later in the uh, interview, but yeah. um, click or no click. I mean, how do you feel about that? Back in those days, you didn't really use a lot of click. You just had a good drummer that you trusted, and how did that? How did you feel about that? How did that? I we we fought a battle about the click. Like I not fighting with each other, fighting. You know, well, should we use a click or shouldn't we use a click? But does it, it kill the groove, the or does it? You know, yeah. does it like uh, go for soda? No click. Yeah. All we are click. Um, yeah. Oh, I see. So it's yeah, yeah, dependent on the song, right? And also, then we got into this thing with the third album where we did it with a click, and then Kim said, "I want the click." When we go into the chorus, I want to boot the kick, click up a couple of notches, oh, okay. and then bring it back for the. And so we That's did that. So so just give it a bit of a. For what one or two beats per minute? Yeah, or, or yeah, and not so, an insane amount, but enough to give it some energy. So we did that, but a, a lot of stuff would be non-click. You know, um, I would agonize over that. Like, like I like playing with a click just because it took the pressure off of me. You know, because I would, I know the feeling. Yeah, I would. Nobody die. can ever say you sped up or slowed down yeah. because it's like you're you're yeah. off of it. You know? But then Kim sometimes would say, "Ah, it sounds clicked," and then he'd go, right. "Well, we really should do it with a click." Ah, but it sounds clicked. You know, so we this thing would go back and forth on, on yeah. it. You know, and um, and of course in the mid '80s there was a lot of records with the drum machine on yeah. there with the Lindrum, and so you had to fight against yeah. that. You know, and now Paul Lyme talked about that a little bit in our conversation about well in the 80s we all had to kind of like reshift our thinking and try and sound like a drum machine yeah. because we were basically competing against a yeah. machine in a lot of cases and then there were some gigs where no i want it to move i want to feel it yeah. i want it to be like a 70s record where it has expression yeah. i i i'm i'm really i've had it with the grid and i you know i record a lot at home and stuff and always with a click and everything but i've really had it with that and and i just want to play 
but you can't. But I, yeah, you know, like I, there's this thing, a really interesting on YouTube I saw a while back where somebody they took John Bonham took a track and they quantized it and fixed right. it all, and it sounded weird, did they? It sounded like a generic rock drummer right. when yeah. he played it. There, there's things if you yeah. look at it, it's like yeah. it's wrong, but it's got I've heard people good. talk about. Uh, something like Honky Tonk Women yeah. starts out with uh, with Watts playing yeah. just uh, d- just that beat, and then by the end of the song, it's like drastically faster. But nobody ever one time ever said, no. "Oh, that sucks." That's listen to that drummer; he sped up the whole time. Nobody ever complained no, about it, right? No. It's just it's a natural thing. Half the records I love uh, speed up or slow. Well, they don't slow down so much, but speed up. But um, yeah, Ken Scott was at. Um, Humber College, where I was teaching, he came and he was producer of the week or whatever, and he came and did a whole talk about that, and how and the whole thing of performances and like get capturing a performance recording. Like we used to do that with Tran. You know, we we actually four guys, five guys trying to capture a, a take. You know, of, yeah. And, I mean, now you, that's unheard of. You know, <laughs> nobody does that. I mean, you know, there's such an argument nowadays of of that, you know, and when we first started using Click in the studio, of course, you know, you're using Pro Tools, and when you mentioned the grid, for those who don't know, the grid is basically in Pro Tools, which is, you know, digital recording. Um, You want the ability, a producer wants the ability to be able to sort of take a guitar solo uh, on one take and try it on another take or uh, move it to the end of the song or whatever, just move things around and mix and match. Whereas if you don't use the Click, it's a lot more difficult because the, the timing may be a little tiny bit different and it won't match uh, so for things like vocals for things like uh, um, you know moving a chorus doubling a chorus things like that you know, you have a lot more capability and back in the 70s when and even in the 80s when you didn't really have that so much um you know, it was just like, we'll do a full take and we'll see what that sounds like and then we'll go back and listen to it. And if it didn't have the feeling, we'll just do it again. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I like that. You know, I, um, it's a lot of pressure for a drummer because you got to play perfect, you know, and, and and everybody else could fix a note here and there. But back then, when it was two inch tape, you, you the drummer had to be right on, you know. So, yeah. but still, if a fill gets rushed or something, like it's not yeah. with my old ears, it doesn't bother me. My students, like I, I remember playing my students, um, I play them a Return to Forever thing or something with Lenny White, and it starts to rush a bit, and, and yeah. they're, they're like, is he speeding up? Oh my God! And it's just like you'd think that, like you the know, sin, like the seventh sin of yeah, hell, like it was know? just like, oh my God, are you, oh, how God, you can't listen to that? That's terrible, you know. And it's like, what, you know? I don't know. <laughs> so yeah. what, you know? I mean, listen to some symphonies back in the eighteen hundreds and seventeen and eighteen hundreds. They moved all the time. Well, that there was wasn't part they of the deal. Yeah, music, was, they didn't use a metronome. That's why you had a conductor to exactly you know, bring yeah. this down. It's got to move. Yeah, yeah. but so, um, yeah. So I don't know. Um, I like, uh, I, I like, I'm, you like it to move a little bit. No, I was talking to Kim Mitchell yeah. and he was saying he enjoys, when we were talking about jamming, yeah. uh, getting together and jamming. And he says, I just want to do something that has expression to yes. it, that has, yeah. uh, that moves, that, that has some dynamics to it, mm-hmm. both, uh, you know, sound wise and tempo wise. Mm-hmm. You know, we want something that, that he's, yeah. he made an expression. Like there's a lot of great drummers. Like Richie Hayward was a drummer who couldn't play with a click and, but his feel was extraordinary, you know. Little Feet, those records are just amazing. But I know someone who hired him for a session and made him play to a click, and it was excru- excruciating for him and and to listen to it. Just wasn't in his DNA. But he's a great drummer and is and he's great feel, you know. So not everybody's cut out for for that. Now Stan Lynch from 
Tom Petty band, yeah. that was a huge thing with him. He mm-hmm. just refused outright, from what I understood, that's maybe wrong, but he just uh, did not want to work at the click. He didn't want to, but did, times were changing, and mm-hmm. Tom Petty wanted to start using like Pro Tools and things mm-hmm. like that, and they wanted to try the click. And he was just like, that's not what I do. Yeah. I don't do that. I'm not yeah. that kind of drummer. Yeah, well, I don't know. It's, um, and Stan Lynch is a great drummer. Yeah. You listen to those Tom Petty records. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe they weren't locked into a grid or on a click track or whatever. But man, they sounded great. I think it, it part, you know, part of it is like engineers and stuff, producers. They they hear with their eyes. They look at at, at the the Pro Tools and they see, oh, that bass drum is it's just a, off a there. bit ahead. You know, I know this um, engineer that I've recorded, and he with him and. Um, so you get a good take, and then he says, "Okay, give me a half an hour," and he fixes everything. He moves yeah. anything that's, and it, it, yeah. it just takes the life out of it. I like a little tension. Yeah, of course, that, yeah, you know? a and little human makes it human. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's just me, but I, it, it, because it's a performance, and a performance entails whatever happens, and it's spontaneous. And look at Led Zeppelin. You know, it's like, man, those records are pretty loose, but oh my god, they feel great. You know, anyway. So you've, uh, how many years were you with Kim Mitchell? Um, from 82 to 87. Wow, that's quite, yeah. that's and, quite a uh, while. You guys through, toured, I know you guys toured across, you guys toured, no, that was, I was going to say you guys toured with Rush, but. Um, that was Max Webster. That was Max Webster, yeah. yeah. yeah I remember Kim did. Mitchell talking about, uh, oh, I guess it wasn't the Rush tour he was talking about, he was talking about Van Halen, and he said, it talk, he had a little story about how he was talking to Eddie Van Halen, just having a conversation before they went on, before Van Halen went on. And, uh, he was watching uh, Eddie Van Halen just like with his guitar unplugged, just had it, you know, yeah. wearing it, you know, fixing to go on stage. And we're just having a normal conversation. And Eddie Van Halen is just like yeah. on the neck. And Kim couldn't to this day tell you what he was saying because he was focused on what he was playing yeah. just nonchalantly with his yeah, fingers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I was on that gig. We, we I was. Um, it was a stadium gig, Rochester, Silver Stadium in Rochester, and it was BTO and us and Van Halen, and that was that was a rock and roll circus, boy. I, I learned a lot that day. Oh my God, just watching them from the side of the stage. Watching Alex Van Halen do his thing. Those guys, they look like death. Alex and Eddie, they were they were at the height of their uh, alcoholism, and they were <laughs> drinking this Colt Forty Five malt liquor, and we saw them in the afternoon and. They looked like death, and it was like, how are they going to get through the show? And my God, when they hit the stage, it was like... Life. It was like... Unbelievable. Animals. Wow. Yeah, like, unbelievable. And, um, yeah, true rock and roll animals. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, it was great. That was, that was cool. So, uh, touring with uh, Kim Mitchell, and, yep. um, and you also you did some... Uh, you got into doing, like, the stage plays and the music for stage mm-hmm. plays, like Hair and yeah. Rent and stuff like that. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that, what that was like? Yeah, I... <clears throat> I um I just all of a sudden I had a hankering to do that. I think maybe because um, my buddy Mark Kelso, great great Canadian drummer, he was doing Tommy, uh, the musical Tommy, and I love that music and I wanted to get in on that. So he said, well, "You want to be my sub?" So I said, "Definitely," you know. So, but he he read me the riot act. He said, "If you're gonna sub on on the show, you gotta. There's no rehearsal. You gotta nail it. You gotta go in and." Um, you gotta already know it. Yeah, rehearse it from and, like a and, tape or something. Or, yeah. So what was I was reading music at the time. Yeah, yeah, and um, because even if you say, well, I know the Who, I know Tommy, but the musical is, it's you gotta watch the conductor because he's gonna bring you in and everything. So, so I had to learn all about working with conductor. I had to 
so I used to, I, I uh, videotaped, I took a video camera in and I videotaped the conductor. Uh, and I could hear the music and I could see him. So, because you can't be looking at the music and he's trying to slow you down or stop see, you. Yeah. You've got to be looking at him all the time. So anytime that, that there's an important change going on, uh, you have to memorize that part because you have to be looking at him. So I had to learn all those things. And um, anyway, but I nailed the first show. So, because Mark had said, if you don't nail it the first time, they might give you another chance, but they might not. And and then the word will get out that you're not the guy for theater. So they just didn't want to waste anybody's time with rehearsal, right? They were just like, look, if you want the thing, you got to yeah, just get in so there and do it. It's the most pressure I've ever felt in my life that subbing in on those. And I put myself through it uh, with uh, Tommy and then with Joseph, amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and then Rent. Lion King, Lion King, man, that's a heavy drum book. That was a lot of pressure. And um, those were the main ones. And then I did hairspray and hair and everything, um, which is funny for a guy with no hair. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, um, <clears throat> that turned out really well for me because um, not only I was subbing in Toronto, but then they, I would end up going on the road um, with some of these things. Rent, uh, I was doing it in Ottawa, and the guy from New York, I forget his name, he came up. And he liked my playing, so so I ended up doing rent in the U.S. for four months um, with two different touring companies down there. So I made a lot of money, and also I, I was getting paid. The pension was accumulating, uh, oh, see, now. Yeah. so now the pension pays my mortgage, so it's good. But so I did ten years solid of um, of, of that, and it, it was great. But it's a little soul destroying doing the same thing. Right. Like um, when you're subbing, it's not too bad. I'd be doing like Lion King two or three times a week. I think I did 450 Lion Kings. But then when I was doing Rent, I'm, I was the only guy, so I was doing eight shows a week for four months. You know, and that's that's a grind. You know, yeah. like really. That's got to be a different kind of uh, experience playing drums for a, a play like that. Mm-hmm. And, and here's what I mean: is when you're in a band or you're playing, <clears throat> even in a club mm-hmm. or anything, uh, you're playing drums. You're kind of on stage, and people look at you and they see you, and you're kind of the thing. You know, yeah. you're 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 putting on a show yeah. visually, and uh, you know you're being watched and listened to and all that. But doing these plays, you're kind of down in the pit, right? Mm-hmm. And you're you're just there. You're just like you know, no one's going to be looking at me or anything. Yeah. I'm just kind of here to, almost like a you know it's an ancillary part of the whole thing but the real yeah. stars are up on stage doing their that's thing. right is that how does that feel i mean yeah is it is weird and um like when i was doing lion king i i was able to i got so used to it that i was able to do um a whole sunday crossword during the show like because <laughs> there's musical cues basically where you're not doing anything right. or and i would non-musical cues i knew all those so listen with one ear and i'm doing my drinking my tea and doing the crossword <laughs> then i hear the cue word and put it down yeah. play the yeah. part yeah. back you know so that's a really strange thing rent was different because we were on stage uh so so we were so when you say cue you somebody would say a word some of the yeah. actors would, would say a certain would word say, and, uh, yeah. well so that means that oh and oh that's my cue to yeah. get ready <laughs> Yeah, and it becomes like a contest. Like I remember this um, percussionist on Tommy Marty Morell. He uh, he would he'd be reading a book, and I'd be watching him, and I go, "He's going to miss this cue. I know he's going to miss it." And he, he literally like the he'd be, the book would go over, and the sticks would come up like like I've never like oh. seamlessly. You know, it's like oh, so, yeah. so funny to watch. But the, but yeah, so that's a little uh, it is a little soul destroying. And then if that's the only thing you're doing. 
um, it's not so bad when you sub in because then you're still doing all your other gigs and everything. But it, but if you're the main guy and you have to do eight shows a week, then you you finish like I finished four months and I went out and did a gig where I had to play a shuffle, and I I I could not play. I I all I could do was play that show. I could I've forgotten how to play, and I was practicing this wow. stuff. But you just you get so zoned. Muscle on that. memory is just gone you, on that. Yeah, I had to relearn how to be myself and play <laughs> different styles. Wow. And, but it did, probably didn't take you very long. Did no, it? no, I mean, no. Just it's just a matter of getting back. And you're just like back to normal. Yeah, again. yeah. But uh, the initial, that first gig was like very strange, you know, because, yeah. And there's guys that do those shows for years and years and years, you know, so it's, it's, it is wow. weird. What would you say if a drummer is maybe sort of interested in sort of that line of work as like playing in plays and that kind of thing? <clears throat> what would you say, uh, what would be your advice of getting into that? I know you have to probably audition and you got to network and meet some people and stuff, but as far as... Yeah, it's not even a matter of auditioning. It's um, it's no, it's hanging out, finding out who's doing the shows. And you have to be able to read. You, you, have you to should be, able be a good reader. Really well. You should and, study up on reading yep, and, drum charts. But you need to be able to follow a conductor, so you got to get um, some experience with that. But, I mean, like... Um, so you, what you mean is, like, you're looking at the conductor, but you also have to look at where you're yeah. at on the page, and it's kind of this dance between... Yes, that's right. You have to keep looking back and yeah. forth, you know, and... Um, so, um, but yeah, no, you just got to find out who's doing the show. Start hanging out with them. Ask them if you can come and sit in the pit. And, and um, if they have confidence that, yeah, I think this guy could do it, you know, if you're keen enough and hardworking enough. And uh, like I would spend a month preparing for a show, uh, like literally doing the thing with the, I did that videotaping thing with every right. show I did. Um, so you probably didn't even need the music, you know, really, because yeah, you knew no, all the parts, right? By yeah, you get to you get to know it. But um, uh, was I there would, a time where you stopped looking at the music and you just already knew, you know, kind of what? Uh, some of it, but a lot of it, I would still look at just to be safe. Count bars, you know, just because mm -hmm. if you screw up, it's bad for them up upstairs. Course, yeah. Like it's not good. I I mean, I did some funny shit and uh, every there's there's always little mistakes stuff. But one time. In uh, Joseph, when I was first subbing in, I hit a major cymbal crash where in a quiet in, spot. Oh no! And they're like laughing on stage. The conductor's like laughing. The whole pit's laughing at me. It's like ah. And another time in uh, like, my bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> another time in Lion King, there was supposed to be there was some electronics involved, and I set up the wrong patch, and it was supposed to be a gong or like some big. Yeah. Instead, it went ping. You know, I was like ah. Yeah. You just feel like an idiot, you know. So. so. What would be the repercussion for that? Would they say something to you at the end, or would they just know that you messed up and they'll go, "Yeah, way to go." Yeah, it would just be. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think everybody experiences that. Just the yeah. little sort of stumbles along the way. Yeah. You know, like, well, I won't do that again. Oops. Yeah. You know? yeah. But that's what we need to. That's the only thing. The way we learn is. <laughs> I used to have a band director in school that used to say. He used to say, when in doubt, overdo. And I never understood that at that time. That just to me, well, if you're in doubt, why would you yeah. why would you overdo? Because then you're just gonna make an A, an a yeah. out of yourself, you yeah. know, an ass out of yourself. Yeah. And then it, it was only years I, later that I sort of got that, you know, that's oh, well it only takes one time yeah. to really stumble and make an ass out of yourself and then you're like, Okay, now I'm I'm on it now, yeah. I know what to do, you know. But it's it's terrible, and I, I found on those shows that if you do make a mistake, then you're thinking about it for the whole act, you know, and and then you make more mistakes Miss more stuff because yeah, you're right. just concentrating on what you just screwed up. So that's another lesson you, you got to let it go. If you, uh, I mean, I've seen conductors screw up. I've seen 
everybody screw up, you know, and it's yeah. uh, it's just part of the deal. Uh, you do a show night after night after night, you know, it's just, it's part of the deal. But um, I heard a, an interesting saying that that has always stuck with me, and I, tell me if you agree with this. Um, amateur players, amateurs work to get it right. With the, whether it's an actor or whatever, yeah. they work to get it right. A pro works to never get it wrong. Yeah, yeah. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that pros don't make. They never make mistakes. I'm just yeah. saying that they work to never get it wrong. Yeah, yeah. You know, like it's whatever you play. It just kind of comes out somehow, even though yeah. it was an accident. Yeah. How to make an accident into what you meant to do? Is it sort yeah. of that's kind of way I look at it? Yeah, I mean, you see um, somebody like Dave Weckl or something like they, they'll turn. A mistake, mistake. Not yeah. really. They'll turn it into something cool, like um, like Bob Ross says, a happy accident. Yeah, totally. <laughs> there are no mistakes. Happy accidents. It, yeah, exactly. So, so how to recover? Yeah, to yeah. recover without freaking out and and destroying, making it. it worse. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, that's an art, definitely. And I think as I've gotten older, I I'm, even if I'm having a bad night, I just feel a little off. I can recenter myself, and and I you know I don't generally. Um, I can make it sound like good every night, you know. Yeah. I should put knock on wood because <laughs> next gig I go, I'll I'll mess it all up. But but generally, my consistency is good. Whereas when I was young, it wasn't. I'd be great one night, I'd be terrible the next night. You know, it, it was uh, there was something I had to learn how to be consistent. You know. Yeah, I think it's a mental thing that we that we've been doing this for a long time is that we're in kind of a zone, sort of mm-hmm. a focus. It's kind of a focus thing. It's like yeah. when you can. When you can tell your mind, you hit a switch and you tell your mind, okay, I got to focus here. I need to, yeah. and it's almost like you don't even physically hit that switch. You're just in that mode when you start playing. Yeah, exactly. You're in focus mode, you know. You're yeah, like, exactly. Like a, it's a laser point, you know. Exactly. Um, yeah. So yeah. Uh, you uh, also teach clinics and you, you, you taught at a college, right? Is that right? Yeah, Humber College for 33 years, actually. Um, wow, I started, 33 years you yeah. taught? Yeah. When I finished with Kim, that's when I started at this. At, uh, it was part time, like two days a week, but it was that was great too, like fantastic. And um, now, now, when you were teaching, did you also play gigs and yep, stuff oh like yes. that too? Yeah, yep. I was playing all the time, and um, yeah, like so. So actually, like after Kim, like so, I started teaching there, and I started doing clinics because Sabian had been bugging me for a while to do clinics, and I, I was too shy i mean I that's a good position to be in if you, your yeah. symbol company is bugging you yeah to do no clinics. they were kept saying paul it'd be great and i go oh, i don't want to do it <laughs> but i finally did it i got into it and then i really got into it and it was it was cool and i so i did that and i started doing jingle sessions which was uh, um something new for me uh, that's pretty well. lucrative because i think mean, yeah. if you play music on a commercial then the money the monetary yeah uh, rewards are a lot better for yeah. some reason you yeah. Know, yeah as opposed to playing on records or something yeah i would yeah i made i made good money and it's funny that um now i'm getting royalties from all these kim records from gopher soda and all those records through neighboring rights or what do you call it in the states it's called something else but oh, uh, mechanicals or something like that um yeah. it's a thing called Recording artist up here. It's called Recording Artist Collection Society in the states. I have a friend in LA that uh, he called it something else, but it was originally called Neighboring Rights. But it's for airplay. Yeah. And it, it came out of nowhere a few years ago, and and all of a sudden I started getting money for all these records, which That's I cool. never did back then, but now I am. So it's it's, it's cool, and it was retroactive back to 1984. So That's nice. the, the first couple of checks were really good. Yeah, it was, it was great. 
It's always nice to get mailbox money, something yeah. you did a long time ago that you're still getting paid for. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's kind of, I think that's one of the, that's not why we do it. You know, we don't make music to do that, but it's always, it's a nice little icing it's, on the cake to be sort of recognized for what you did, yeah, or what you do. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. I like it. To be, um, yeah. to be recognized. So you teach clinics and um, now uh, I wrote down a note here when I was doing some research on you, uh, the code, <coughs> yeah. the code, what was it? Can you explain that? Was that yeah, a band? The, the code was... Um, this guitar player, John Pelosi, an amazing guitar player in the style of Scott Henderson and Alan Holdsworth, uh, um, he had a project called The Code uh, and a fusion band, and um, I guess he had tried a different drummer before. But anyway, he asked me if I wanted to do that. And um, that, so that's really great fusion music, like right up my alley, and uh, I love playing in that band. But we didn't play so much, you know? We, he was... Uh, he, John's a great musician, not a great businessman. So we we didn't do too many gigs. We recorded four CDs and um, some really good stuff, and we played some really good gigs. Played it. We also play, played a drum Montreal Drum Fest, which was a great gig, and um, uh, and some jazz clubs and stuff. But it never really got off the ground. But what a great band, you know. It was, it was really good. So it was like a labor of love for for. Now, what year would that have been? I think that was maybe starting in. Um, 93 or 94, I can't remember, um, for about five, five, maybe 10 years, I'm not sure. It's all a blur, my whole life's a blur <laughs> now. But I'll let, I, you got to hear some of that stuff because it's, it's pretty cool. I got to not tap there because it's going to go through the mic. There. Oh, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just sitting here noticing, we're, we're in your, your house here, in your yeah. living room here, and uh, I'm noticing an exercise bike, I've never seen this before, an exercise bike with a practice pad instead of a TV like remember you'd normally on a like a bicycle like an exercise <laughs> machine you have a little TV screen that you see some kind of scenery or you watch the news or something you have a practice pad set up yeah. <laughs> on this thing that is the most cool thing so you yeah. that's how you work out yeah I call it practice so yeah, I, can, I can pedal and play and watch TV at the same time that's great and have you uh, tried to market that to drummers that's I should, a great you know, idea I mean I had to figure this out this, yeah this, so you've the, got like pipe clamps pipe clamps, clamps. It's, it's pipe clamp to cymbal onto the exercise bike and it's just kind of this practice pad <laughs> it looks like an alien arm coming up yeah. uh, in front of you and you just practice that's a yeah. great idea practice thank you yeah I, I think it's pretty good and it, it um, you know instead of sitting here uh, when I, watching TV, I put the closed captions on, and I you can write and play. Yeah. It's 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 good. Yeah. That's awesome. So you in, in your in your wise old age, let's say you still practice. You still practice rudiments and that kind of thing. You yeah, actually, I'm working on uh, Steve Gadd, the, the book Adamants. There. Oh uh, yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah. yeah, so I, I do that, and I oh yeah, I'm I'm um, I don't practice as much as I used to, but I'm always practicing. Uh, generally, I'm practicing to pre prepare for gigs, though. Oh, yeah. um, but I do, I, I, I do work on, I try and keep working on new ideas and, and things. There's so much to work on. I've been working on open-handed playing a lot. Mm -hmm. um, playing with your left, leading with your left hand. With my left, uh, yeah. right handed, playing left-handed on a right-handed key. Yeah. My first drum teacher, not my first drum teacher, one of my drum teachers I had in the early 80s, uh, Dave Miller was his name. He played with Bill Tillman, who was the saxophone player for Blood, Sweat, and Tears, oh, and then he formed his own band. Yeah. And I took private lessons from Dave Miller, who was a left-handed player on a right-handed mm -hmm. kit. And I was always nice. so envious of him because yeah. he, when you play, like you said, open-handed, you don't have to cross your hands. Yeah. You can hit fills. You, you, yeah, just, no, you can keep amazing. the hi-hat going. And I was always so jealous of, of that yeah. aspect of it. I worked on that because I was so into Lenny White and Billy Cobb. I, I was working on that a lot in the 70s, playing open-handed and then I let it go and now I'm 
I'm back at it again because you know the uh, the vibes, the Billy Cobham thing. Like yeah. I, yeah, I thought, well, oh, this would be cool if I could play at least some of the things that way. So um, yeah, so so it's something to work on. So it's uh, you play traditional grip, right? No, no. Yeah. I play oh, you match. play yeah. oh match grip. Yeah, I, meant, yeah. I meant to say match. I got them backwards. Yeah. Um, yeah. You play match grip. Always yeah. have, always have. I so. played traditional when I was younger. Um, when I was, uh, I took lessons for a couple of years with this guy Pete Megadini, who was a great, great teacher and great drummer. And I, that during that time, I was playing traditional. But again, after seeing Billy Cobham and Lenny White, I, I thought yeah. I got to switch. So I took seventy nineteen seventy five. I <clears throat> I switched over, and it took me two years to get my chops back, match grip. But I um, I like it. But um, now I kind of wish eh, I should have kept that going. But I can't do both. I, it has yeah. to be one or the other. Uh, some people can do both. Like I, Steve Gadd, I'll see Switch yeah, sometimes. Yeah, and Tony like Williams that. used to switch all the and time. I, for me, it's one or the other. So And uh, Neil Peart, of course, he he switched, He went from match to, like, took lessons and everything. And started Freddy playing Gruber, traditional. Yeah. And then, then you would see a gig before he passed away. You'd see him play <clears throat> match grip again. So it was kind of back and forth, I think. I think he, he went to Freddie Gruber and, and got convinced that this was a good way. But uh, in the end, it was just... You I mean, can't if you're fight playing, the, your natural, yeah, you know, yeah. I think memory. he was so used to to this, but um, um, you know, there's always going to be a debate about which is better. But uh, I've always, when I was growing up, when I would see a rock drummer mm-hmm. that played traditional grip, I was always so impressed with that, like Stuart Copeland mm-hmm. and uh, Rick Allen with Def Leppard. You yeah. know, watching those early when he had his yeah. before he got his arm severed, uh, when he would play. You know, yeah. with both arms, and he had the uh, traditional grip yeah. as in and, and a heavy metal band. I thought that's that's odd, but that's re, you know, re, yeah. I respected him for that. But I mean, that's a that's hard if you're hitting as hard as Stuart Copeland, or yeah, uh, that's hard on this finger. It really you know, is. <laughs> it's a lot of not to mention your elbow and your shoulder and everything. Yeah, the I whole mean, thing. But to, uh, but I like it too. Like see Virgil Donati or or, or Narada Michael Walden or some of these guys or Vinny. Like Vinny kicks the shit out of the drums with. Uh, what I always liked about it is that you could raise your snare a little bit higher yeah. and it wasn't uncomfortable. But yeah. with match grip, you, you you have to lift your elbow so high, and that's how the traditional grip got started was that's right. in the in the traditional days in the marching like in yeah. the colonial days with the flute and the yeah. and the march into battle they had to sling the drum across their uh, neck or shoulders or whatever off to the side because you couldn't march with it in front of you because your knees yeah. would hit it so you right. do it off to the side and then instead of having to lift your elbow way up and high they would just drop it down yeah. and then play with that and that's how that yeah transcended over into jazz and yeah it's um it's funny I, uh, um, I mean uh, Steve Smith has made a study of uh jojo mayer too uh i don't know whether you see his dvds but um about all the different ways of you know you could have the fulcrum here you could have it on the middle finger tony williams played a lot from the back you know and, right. and you could play thumbs up you know over you know there's yeah. so many variations uh, and none, none is really right or wrong really. no I and mean, they're all adaptable for you can prove it either yeah, way yeah depending on what you're 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 doing you adapt the like I, if I'm playing a ride cymbal, I might be playing thumbs up if I'm playing jazz. But if I'm playing the bell, I'm going to have, yeah. it's going to be over, you know. So yeah. um, it just depends on what you're doing. If you're playing a press roll, then it's going to be, you know, from the first joint. Maybe, right, yeah. Like delicate. That's but a whole other thing. But if you're playing, like then it gets into Tony Williams' line yeah. where you're holding it from the back. So. It's interesting, like all those. The comfort things. is really the number one thing. Mm-hmm. You know, is they have to be comfortable into whatever you, however you hold it, whatever you feels yeah. natural to you. And and relaxation too, like being yeah. relaxed with it and everything. But I uh, know that uh, this is going to sound <clears throat> odd, but um, uh, 
Travis Barker talked about how he would look at the kit and he would play it and he didn't want to be comfortable. He wanted to make it look like he would raise his arms and play. Uh, he would he would flail his arms up and make it look harder than it was. You yeah. know, like he, he didn't have to do that. And he wasn't actually hitting the drum any harder, really. It just looked like it. Yeah. He just like the way he would move his body because he wanted to be more visual. And so he would set his drums up flatter and higher yeah. and yeah. Where, where they were almost difficult to hit. And mm. he, and he, Embrace that as mm. a uh, as a kind of a um, the way a, a, a linebacker will tie a parachute to his back and run yeah. that kind of thing. You well, know, so. Tony Williams said the same thing. He's, he has his drums up high and his cymbals high, and he said, "I like to get a good swipe at it." And he, yeah, and and not because he want uh, not necessarily because of a visual thing, but just because it feels then like you're hitting like it's a motion that, and and it's you're making it a statement sort of you know like like. And I, I agree with that. Like it's that's like a swing of the, the baseball past. bat. You know, you yeah. don't want to yeah do that. It, it has to have a certain amount of movement to make it sound and to I don't know. It's it's a but I understand it. I mean, I still have my um, crash cymbals up fairly high, and uh, but it's funny when I was teaching a Humber like for thirty years, I would see different trends in in the kids. I come in and you know kids adjust the drums and the last five years they the stool would be in the stratosphere uh-huh. the drums would be down low and flat oh. and the crash cymbals would be almost touching the toms like you couldn't get a oh, decent oh yeah you know yeah. you'd have you to, have to reach down to it yeah. yeah and it would be rattling on the tom and stuff and i'm going who, who plays drums like this, this is, they're so, like ringo star i guess it's just not <laughs> no no but it was weird because man put the cymbal up high enough so that at least you can get a swipe out right uh, yeah. you know and Always, I have to search around. Don't get me started. I have to search around for the felts and the wing nuts because nobody does that anymore. They just right. put the symbol on. Just stick it now, on there. And... The way I hit symbols, if I put a crash symbol on with no felt, or the yeah. first time I hit it, it's going flying. It's going flying. But that's probably me. But <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Different trends, you know. Um, I've seen trends go from like the '80s, as you know, when we were playing back in the '80s. The big wall of toms across the front and the cymbals you never saw the drummer yeah. because not only on a riser up high but they also had the toms in front of them and you might see the top of their head yeah, maybe yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know it's, <laughs> it was more like you know, you listen, you heard it and you knew he was back there and that kind of thing and uh, then when you were lucky enough to get a DVD I mean sorry a VHS yes. of the concert or see him on uh, MTV yeah. you could actually have a camera back there and you yeah, could yeah. actually see oh that's what he looks like you know? <laughs> yeah, well, that's like what Tommy happened. Aldridge he's wearing just a uh, like a diaper or something <laughs> <Yeah>. like <laughs> I think that's where the, the uh, Muppets animal came from. Is that that uh, persona, you know, of the the multi toms? Oh right, yeah, you know, that's, you know. going crazy everywhere. But it's now. And then it went to like in the, what the the nineties. It kind of things went back down to the Ringo thing, where everything yep. was low and sort of just the one and four tom piece kits. Yeah, and now people are man. It, it, I I think it's like it's like Santa's workshop. Like they got. Um, Maybe they'll have one floor tom, but everything else is like all these stacks of hi hats and everything. <laughs> yeah, percussion stuff, and and which is cool up to a point, you know. But after a while, I just want to hear Simon Phillips and hear some big. Oh toms, yeah, you man. Know? You know, but that's. I think it's going to go back to that. I really do. I think it's going to go back to the music stores and the, you know, as it were, the people selling the stuff are going to kind of skew it toward that. Yeah, man. but it's. Um, I see the and I see I saw this guy on uh, on Instagram. There's this nonstop gospel chop guys and just guys playing furiously oh, yeah. fast and stuff and but they very often they got the drums very muffled and you'll yeah. see they'll put like they'll, they'll a put, towel on it or something like, and also they'll put like um some beads and a oh, yeah. and a 
you know what is that little metal chain like the, like a necklace the yeah, chain yeah. like you put your dog tags on or something yeah yeah put that on and there and uh, put, yeah. a, put a dead hamster on it you know, it's just like, <laughs> thump, 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 you know? so so yeah so it's a, it's a weird um time we're going through right now and and um seems like it's going back to muffled drums it mm-hmm. went from like muffled in the 70s to like the 80s they were a little more uh more tone and then in the 90s it was like bling ring everywhere and then now it's back to like yeah, like snare drums, like people, um, but just like that honk, you know, like yeah. with with uh, uh, no muffling and and just that thing. And now, man, they've got like put a I, towel on it. They put a towel. Yeah, on a towel. Or like when I was first uh, first session, I did uh, that. I came in and they they had already put a wallet on the snare, taped yeah, it on. And we used to do that. That was like a normal thing to do back then. And now it's it seems like it's back to that. And I. You know, when the first time I heard um, Lenny White and um, well Billy Cobb like wide open toms, I just oh wow, man, that's the sound I like. You know, but yeah. a, a lot of people can't relate to that anymore. But uh, I always enjoyed drummers who would do something different, like Don Henley or something, and have the timbales up there just yeah, to yeah. kind of make it. You know, it's like like a guitar player having a certain amp or something. It's yeah. like that's your sound. You yeah. know, you, you you have license to you can sound yeah. if you want to make one tom extremely high and ringy and bongy. Go ahead, do it. You know, yeah. it makes you unique. Yeah, that's. I just saw this interview with um, the guy that was Tony Williams' uh, tech talking. To Tony, somebody come up to Tony and said, "What's the secret of your tuning? Like, how do you tune your drums? Like, how tight? What notes?" And he said, "That's my sound. I'm not going to tell you that. You find yeah. find your own sound. Yeah. You know, like find what you like. Exactly. And because yeah. uh, everybody has their idea of what it should be, but." Um, my my buddy Bob Wilson that played bass with Kim, um, he said to me, he sat down behind my drums once and, and he said, Paul, your drums always sound like drums. And I thought, oh, well, that's pretty cool. I like that idea. Well, you know, you just sat down behind my drums. Both sets are like wide open, clear yeah, masters, right, yeah. you know. But I mean, I think what people don't realize is like that Gretsch that I have down there to record with, it is wide open. But when you put mics on it and re- listen back to what you just recorded they sound just sound like really deep toms they don't yeah. sound like like boing boing you know like the they sound pretty garbagey just if you hear them acoustically and you think oh i better put some tape on them or something yeah. but no just if you got i got four sennheiser 421s on them they're gonna sound great even if they sound awful to you right yeah. now you know um they will sound good you know well you have to tune them for sure you yeah. have to tune them but um uh I had someone was telling me one time, and I think it might have been Paul Lyme, and they said something about uh, well, when I put my ear up to. Oh, it was no, it was uh, it was um, uh, Mills Logan, our engineer that engineers a lot of uh, our Lone Star records and stuff right. like that. We started talking, and he said uh, someone said one time, "Well, when I put my ear up to this drum, it sounds like this." And he goes, "Yeah, but that microphone is not your ear." Yeah, anyone's a good point because yeah. you know that's not it's not Mic- going to sound the same with your ear as opposed to a microphone placed yeah. in the right position. Yeah, I'm always shocked at at how the microphone hears it. You know how when I play it back and I go, "Wow," you know, because you might be thinking you're getting. Oh, I better muffle the snare. No, when you hear that snare with the track, it sounds just about right. You know, whereas if you muffle yeah. it down, it'd be too weak. You know, like those are all the things that I've sort of learned over the years. And of course, back in the '70s, the engineers used a lot of gates and stuff like yeah. that, so you could have a real quanky, loud, ringy snare, and then they would gate it, and it would just like ring for just that much, yeah, and yeah. it would be gone. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's it's uh, 
I still go for the same sounds I've always liked, you know. And I might add a stack or something to be modern, you know. <laughs> but generally, when I you just say stack. What do you mean? Uh, like a uh, we get two Chinese symbols together, or a, oh, or right. a okay. little crash yeah. on top of Chinese, so it sounds like white right. noise type thing, you know. Um, but uh, generally, I just like toms to sound like tom toms and everything to sound full and deep. And yeah, right. I think that's it's a young drummer coming up uh, for those of you. Who are thinking about a career in drums? You know that's a that's a huge lesson in being yourself and trying to make an original sound. Try to sound like nobody else. Yeah, you know, there's value in that. Yeah, for sure. I, I uh, yeah, like um, think like Phil Collins before he got into the concert toms and everything. He, uh, some of the early Genesis stuff. He had a four piece set of Gretsch and he had tuned them really tight. Yeah. But man, it worked. Like the, I noticed something about Gretsch. Um, I lent my drums to Bill Stewart to do a clinic once. And um, so I put coated ambassadors on them and I cranked them up to where I think he probably would, where I thought he probably would have liked them. And when I got the drums, when I, I heard him play and they sounded really deep and amazing. And I thought, wow, he must have loosened them off. Wrong. He tightened them up. There's a, you can, he tightened them up so much that the bass drum practically went ping. Like, oh, wow. But when you lay into them, all yeah. of a sudden, all this bottom end comes out. Like this, he wow. had a six, my 16-inch floor tom. It was so tight, tighter than it's ever been. When I got them back, I went, this can't be. Yeah. But the way he hit them and laid into them, this whole other thing started happening. It's almost like you're using the shell, the shape and the size of the shell as your sound rather than the head. You're yeah. not relying on the head, yeah. you're relying on the drum itself. Yeah, so that was uh, that was a real eye-opener to me because uh, it's like you, you, you could go from a low tuning to sort of medium, but then if you go really tight, Within that tightness, there can be all this bottom end depth that comes out. It's like a different echelon. All of a sudden, it opens up this whole other thing, yeah. and it freaked me out. Like uh, especially the bass drum, because he when he laid into that, it it was an 18 inch bass drum, wide open, clear, uh, coated ambassadors, wide open, and it just sounded incredible. It just it, and but deep, you know. And I was going, how does this work? You know, it's very strange. Yeah. I'll never understand. <laughs> Well, so what would <coughs> advice would you have for uh, some young drummers that are coming up, and especially in today when everything's all about streaming? And but there are still the fact that you have to play live. There's always going to be that, and put butts in seats and that kind of thing. So from a visual standpoint, also from playing and listening and all that, what advice? What's your best advice you would have for a young drummer who's just starting out, thinking about going pro? Well, um, yeah, it's so different now. Uh, but I, I think the same things, like uh, the things I found out were that you got to have your time together and you got to have your feel together and, and understand a lot of different styles and feels. The more you can expose yourself to different things, African music or whatever, Brazilian, um, all kinds of things, uh, it's going to all... It's going to shape who you are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so you it can't just be... If you're zoned in on one, oh, I like this band, and that's why I'm going to play like that. That's the kiss of death, I think. I think you need to, unless you happen to get with a band that you can do that with that makes yeah. millions of dollars. Like, but. for instance, if you're uh, like a huge ACDC fan, and you just get in, you just happen to look into getting an ACDC cover band, and then that's your thing. So, yeah, you're, you know, you're very laughing. limited. But. Yeah, but I found, like, my, my career, like, I was always a band guy, but I started making money when I became a freelance guy and I got into musical theater and, and jingles and clinics and teaching and writing books and all this stuff, you know, that um, the more avenues you have, the, the, the more chance you, you have of making a living. And, um, 
And also, like, I mean, really important is attitude and the way you present yourself to people that are hiring you. Like, do you show up on time? Uh, you know, uh, people get turned off instantly if someone would, you know, they hire them for a session and they're late or they bring a gear that doesn't sound good. Yeah, the right. bass drum rattles or the snare is shot, you know, it just sounds awful. Yeah. Or the cymbals are wrong or um, they just, they go, okay, eh. Yeah, I, I heard him. No, I don't like him. Or he did, he showed up late, or he had a, he was hungover, or he he, yeah. he dressed like a bum, or you know you, it, all those things that sound like uh, tr small things. They're they're huge, like the impression you make on people. You know, so your work ethic is everything. And um, uh, I my mother instilled me with a pretty good work ethic, so I've always come early and I come prepared and I. I'm ready with spare heads, and I'm like like a total nerd. You Be know, prepared. Yeah. yeah. Well, Paul Lyme used to say, you know, his thing is, if you're not early, you're late. Yeah. And, and I've always lived by that. Yeah, like if somebody says to me, "Okay, I want you, I need you for a session 10 a.m. on Monday morning," I say, "Is that 10 a.m. downbeat, or do I show up at 10, or what time can I show up to set up, or you know, like I make that very yeah. clear. You want to make it clear what it is because you got to get sounds and you got to yeah, you know, yeah. So mic everything up. and I'm there an hour ahead of time always, yeah. you know, and um, yeah, and uh, so all those things, um, but oh, but I think it's just the um, you want to be a drummer that people want to play with. So and it's dangerous now because you got the. Instagram, all these whiz kids just playing incredibly fast, intricate things that sound really impressive and stuff. But that you would never use on anything. Yeah, probably. like you take that <laughs> same kid and put him in the studio with a singer songwriter and say, "Here's my tune," and they just play it on their acoustic guitar. Yeah. What are you going to do what, with what, it? What is yeah. that? And, what fits that? You know? yeah, yeah, and and they'll be like, like a deer in the headlights, like because if you, you know, that's that's listening is part of the deal too, like. I just I discovered all this stuff the hard way after the fact because because mm -hmm. um, I remember when I got to gig with Dominic Trano I I, I, I was twenty five I I mean I I could play I played well you know but but sometimes I just wouldn't know what to play on a on a tune and he and he, he didn't know what to tell me but that's the stuff you learn from just listening listen, listen to Steve Gadd play with Ricky Lee Jones yeah what he played or but really don't just listen to it like don't skim over it listen to it what Everything like what, what does he why, not play too? Why didn't you know, he play? How like, is he laying back and has serving the song? Yeah, like um, this tune, Danny's All Star Joint. It's a really nice shuffle, right? And there's a part where the drums drop out, and then he comes back in uh, on the floor tom, just a triplet, and he, instead of hitting a crash cymbal, he goes yeah. right back to the hi hat. It's killer. I like, love stuff like that. Me too. Like, and you got to wonder what their decision like, was on that. Yeah. Like, oh, are you purposely not hitting the cymbal there? And he always played the right thing for every tune. You know, like everything. And like, I mean, Jeff Picaro slammed his sticks through the head and walked out of a Rickley Jones session, but Gad. <laughs> Because he, he couldn't give her what she wanted, you know, yeah. and that's Jeff Percaro. But Steve Gadd, he, he just had this intuitive, like there's, um, don't get me started, but um, <laughs> with Chick Corea, like uh, is, Steve wouldn't even be sitting at the drums. He'd be standing at the piano, looking at the chart with Chick Corea playing yeah. and just looking and... and um, thinking in his mind what he's going to play, yeah, probably, right? thinking, formulating a whole thing. And he would, and there's this thing I saw, a tribute to Steve Gadd, where Anthony Jackson was saying, Steve Gadd would come to him and say, you see this part here? And there'd be like the black page, there'd be all these notes. He said, don't play that. Play quarter notes on the bass there. It's 
trust me, it's going to work. And it would. Like, yeah. he, he just knew what to play, you know. So, plus he knew, like uh, Phil Ramone said, um, when he put the faders up on Steve Gaz drums, it, it, Steve mixed himself, like he, the, his balance. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so he wasn't hitting that bell too hard like Paul DeLong. He, was, <laughs> he knew just how everything was mixed and balanced, so... Literally making it easy on the engineer. Yes, like right, yeah. just thinking ahead. Yeah, like, yeah. what if I was mixing this record? What would I yeah. want this to sound? Yeah, like? yeah. And his drums sounded great, you know. So um, I don't know whether all those things are are still true, but I'd like to think that they are. If it, anybody is hiring you, you know, for a session or or to be in their band or whatever, I I think those things must still be all valid things. So show know? up early, be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And listen, listen yeah. to what everybody's doing, and fit to serve the song. Right? Yeah, yeah, totally. That's that's a, I think that's a real uh, something that kids maybe because of what's going on now might overlook. You know, just uh, because it's hard for them to see. Like I would play at Humber, I would play tunes for my students sometimes. Like a um, a good example of like a perfect drum track, like "I'll Be Over You" by uh, Toto with. Um, uh -huh. Jeff Percaro. That's right. a perfect drum track. Everything about it is perfect. Note, every note. Yeah. So I play that for them, but they're kind of sitting there, you know. Yeah. That's <laughs> boring to me. Yeah, they yeah. don't get it necessarily, but um, some of them do, you know, like some of them. And they will eventually. They'll find out. They're going to go play Rosanna or something. I mean, you're going to play some Toto. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so so I think those things all, all, all still hold true. But who knows, like maybe now programming is is a thing to do or be uh, learn how your DJ skills or it all never these hurts things. to learn that. I, yeah, mean, I always tell like, drummers learn how to if anything learn yeah. how to program a click track mm -hmm. because that click track can either be your worst nightmare or your best friend because because of the subdivisions you know you be yeah. able to need to be able to hear it and I always try to say learn to program a drum machine to where it's pleasant to listen to and they might even use it as a loop or something yeah. something that's useful and that the other musicians may want to listen to instead of some cowbell going yeah. conk conk in their <laughs> ear the whole time yeah no yeah. it's true um yeah it, it's it, it's yeah to be able to make loops and stuff to uh it makes it a lot more pleasant for sure than the <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you know, if they let's say somebody does want a record that has programmed drums on it, learn how to program them. You're the one that's probably going to, yeah. that would help, you know, what should be here, you know, mm -hmm. instead of like a keyboard player or something, just trying to think what drums should sound like. Yeah. You're the drummer. You learn how to program, yeah. you know, what you yeah. want in there. Exactly. So you're really like kind of playing it, but you're not, but you are. It's yeah, your, yeah. No, there's actually a couple of tunes on the last album I did with Kim that, that people don't know, but I programmed the. It's half of its drum machine, then half of its real drums. But I programmed the. Uh, that was recently, right? I think you no, said no, that was on a new record. Eighty-seven. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, it was way, but wait, a long time ago. I, can't, I think Kim was working on a record recently. He's but, got um, a new record. Yeah, he, yeah. We, we played one of his new tunes when we played uh, a couple of weeks ago, and Greg Wells was the played drums on it. And uh, man, it's a killer drum track and a killer tune. Kim is so good. I mean, he's so talented. You know, he's just a great songwriter. Yeah, uh, yeah. His his new stuff is uh, sounds really good. I think that's great that he's even doing a new record. You know, because yeah. a lot of the I guess uh, rockers that have kind of re not retired, but they're just kind of <clears> doing <throat> live gigs and little benefits them. But he's like we're creating a new record. Yeah, well, I think it's just because that's what we have to do. Like you know, like it's if you're it's creative, in our blood, right? you've got to get it out of your system. You know, I mean, you've got to keep doing it no matter if if nobody buys it. I mean, it's kind of like. 
the days of the big record deal and <laughs> the big advance. When and you all had to have stuff. a lot of money to yeah. record anything because yeah, you had to go into a studio and then. Yeah, so I mean, people are putting music out all the, all the time, so it's cool. But um, yeah, Kim's pretty amazing. So what's in the future for you? Are you just going to keep on doing it till you can't do it anymore? Yeah, um, you know, I have my I have my fusion band, um, and we're we're playing this Friday. Actually, it's too bad you're won't be around, but. Uh, so I do that. I do. I do a couple of. I do a Chicago tribute and a Steely Dan tribute. But we actually oh, the, wow. the Chicago tribute. We play all over the U.S. and we play with symphony orchestras and stuff. I mean, we were going great guns. Uh, we've been together twelve years now. We were going great guns before COVID, and now we're just starting to get back. We were just in North Carolina, but um, yeah, it's funny. I'm playing all these tribute bands, but they're actually great bands, and I love. I get to play the music I love, you know. So it's uh, hey, when you um, when you do make me smile, do you do that thing at the end? Oh yeah, I love that. I turned it out all Danny Seraphine stuff because I think his drum parts were iconic. I just think they're as much of a hook as anything else in those tunes. And where it goes, do da do da do da do da da da. That's fun. I listen to that when I go run. I run a lot, and it's on my playlist. I'm always like, I wish I could play that in a band somewhere. Yeah, no, it's big fun, big fun. And I play the actual which was edited out of the radio mix. That's right. When I first heard that, I went, what's this? I know, they went to... It's like the Western or something. That was a little radio edit. And then when I first heard that little march, the Western thing, I was just like, whoa! Yeah. That's so cool. That's so much better than just the edit, you know? I thought, why don't they cut that? But in radio, they got to cut it short. I guess they did, yeah. Except... Bohemian Rhapsody. They didn't edit that. Yeah, right. Good, yeah, good thing. there's a good argument. Yeah, but yeah, it's funny. So, and you wrote a. You said you were going to talk about a book. Oh, you wrote I have a two book books. I have two books. Um, one is called "Well, All My Life People Have Made Fun of My Name" uh, and "Delong" and short of it and "Delong Way." So I call the book uh, both books. Uh, the first one is "Delong Way to Polyrhythmic Creativity" on oh, the drum that's set, awesome. and the second one is called "Delong Way to." Musical phrasing on the drum set. So I've had those out. And Hudson distributes the Polyrhythm book. They distribute um, uh, the hard copy and the E version of the book. And the phrasing book, I distribute the, the I mean, I sell the... Self-distributed or self... The, the, um, the hard copy, but Hudson distributes the E version of the book. So um, Is that available in the States as well? It's available, yeah. And... Um, if you go to my website, www.pauldelong.com, there's a tab that says books, and it's all the infos there, and you can pick which way you want to order them. And but, it's DeLong, uh, D-E-L-O-N-G, right? That's right. Paul DeLong. Yeah, and um, so uh, yeah, so they're available, and either the e-version or the hard copy. But if you order the hard copy of the second one, it... It comes. I get the notice, and I I mail it myself to you. And oh, that so, is yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So it's cool. I don't know whether I'm going to write a third one or not, but um, but yeah, it's 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 fun. And um, how did you uh, navigate through COVID? What did what did you just spend time working on recording? I, I thought you got a recording <clears throat> setup down there. All of a sudden, people started calling me for. Uh, and I was getting real busy recording at home here because uh, people started doing projects that they, yeah. I mean, everybody still wanted to do something. So I started doing that a lot. And I was Zoom doing Zoom lessons for Humber oh, College. Right. I was doing that a couple of days a week. And, um, and I was practicing. 
<clears throat> but not, I, I was uh, basically sitting around freaking out, so uh, like everybody else, <laughs> wondering where my life went. And um, but I, you know, I, I've accomplished some things, you know, but not as much as I probably could have. But it's hard to stay motivated. I don't know about you, but it's I. I found that it was hard to stay motivated, especially in the beginning, <clears throat> when you didn't, <clears throat> excuse me, know what was going to happen. Um, it, I, I found it very hard to concentrate you know, on. Yeah. You know, practicing. Why am I practicing? What, I don't know yeah. when I'm going to work again. What's the future of the world going to be like? Yeah, yeah. So am I ever going to do another live gig? It was a strange um, time. It's still strange, but at least now I'm out doing gigs again and stuff. And uh, so well, I just hope it keeps going upward and uh, we get back to somewhat sort of normal life. But um, yeah, it's been tough. Yeah. Well, best of luck to you. Thank, Thank you, you so much for talking too. to me and uh, talking to us. It's oh, been man, so inspiring. My pleasure. My pleasure. This is uh, Keith Rainwater. I'm the designated drummer, and uh, we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.